0: Well, we're in the Gospel of Luke and we come to a very important moment in the Gospel that in uh, my experience does not get nearly as much, as much attention as it deserves, probably mainly because we just, most people just don't know what to do with it. Um, that is the transfiguration, and so uh, enough with introductions, let's get right to it. Uh, let's pick it up with chapter 9, beginning with verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, that is his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, my beloved, listened to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Uh, let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us through this word about your son in the gospel of Luke. May he... Dwell richly in and among us through your spirit we pray all of this in his name amen. Well, the movement of the life of Christ from here on is is basically set up from verse twenty two uh, onward to the end of the gospel and if you'll remember previously in the section of verses eighteen through twenty two Peter speaking for the eleven uh, or the twelve disciples had confess that jesus is the christ and it's not as though prior to this they had not believed that jesus is the christ john's gospel makes it very clear that the reason any of those disciples followed him is in the first place is that they believed him to be israel's messiah uh, the christ but here for the first time in luke a human makes the confession that jesus is the christ previous they had been demons or angels he is the anointed one of God and as we've mentioned in the past to confess Jesus as the Christ is to put him into comparison with men like Moses David Elijah Elisha even as he's far greater than them their lives point forward and find meaning and fulfillment in him Jesus responds to Peter's confession by giving further detail about who the christ is and he he ties himself to the suffering servant of isaiah 53 the christ is the one who will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes that is the the most important people in israel the israel's shepherds so the shepherds of israel will reject him and he will be killed and on the third day be raised So Jesus would soon suffer, die, be raised on the third day, which would culminate, as we see actually in our passage today, with his glorification, in particular with his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, which in turn will usher in the kingdom of God and the new creation. So Jesus is not only telling them, but showing them how the story will go. And in the middle of the movement is the teaching that his disciples also will take up their cross sometimes literally so and follow him and what that means is that Jesus's disciples will pattern their lives on his own life and we could do that because we have confidence that he will be raised and glorified now after that hard teaching which it is a hard teaching some of the disciples will fall away from this path and he has already taught as much uh, in, in the parable of the sower. So some will choose to avoid the pain and suffering that sometimes accompanies life with Christ in favor of trying to insulate themselves with comfort or pleasure, or will simply be distracted from Christ by the everyday realities of life. That is perhaps, as I mentioned last week, the, the greatest threat facing Christians in our circles today, and our abundance of comfort pleasure, and and really distractions, we easily devalue Christ and lose sight of Him. Even so, Jesus promises that some of them, some of His disciples, would not die without seeing the coming of the kingdom, which means He thinks it's soon going to show up. The transfiguration is, in fact, I think, a sneak peek uh, of that, that coming kingdom that would soon be there. Well, in verse 28, Luke says... About eight days after these, these hard sayings, these hard teachings, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, which are future pillars of the church, with him up to the mountain to pray. Now, the phrase, eight days later, when, when put into connection with Jesus' transfiguration, that is, how his appearance, this is tra- what transfiguration means, how his appearance changed Changed figure, right? Transfiguration, changed from his typical human appearance as the disciples knew him to that point, to his future radiant, glorified appearance. So when when eight days later is connected with that, with verse 31 and his coming exodus, then what's in view is not merely a practical detail, but rather part of the sneak peek of the coming of the kingdom and new creation. Now, if you remember. Uh, from when we first started this series a long time ago. Uh, The number eight, like how, uh, according to the law, a son was to be circumcised on the eighth day, and there's a number of things in the law that were to be done on the eighth day, it's indicative of new creation. It's a symbol of that. That is, if a week is six days plus Sabbath rest, so that's seven total days, then the eighth day is the beginning of a new week. And in the Bible, it's often symbolic of new creation. A new week, a new creation. It's why Christians rightly move the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week to the eighth day. So not only was Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week, otherwise known as the eighth day, his resurrection was the beginning of the new creation coming into the world. That's how the early church saw it. That's why they did what they did. So, every Sunday, we tangibly celebrate and proclaim that the kingdom of God and new creation was ushered into this world through Jesus and his resurrection, even as as we await the total fulfillment of it at his second coming. So, it's already here, but as we all know, it's not yet here fully. So, about eight days after his teaching on his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus gave three of his disciples a view of. To the coming of the kingdom. Now, that this happened on a mountain is not a random detail either. Now, keep in mind that the Garden of Eden itself was on a mountain. Ezekiel teaches that, but you can get the details of Genesis 2 to see how that works as well. Abraham ascended to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac at God's command. God spoke to Moses in the burning bush on Mount Moriah. Sinai. The fire of God in the midst of that tree in in, in Exodus 3, not unlike what is seen in Isaiah 6. It indicates that the throne room of God was right there with Moses on that mountain. And on that same Mount Sinai, God would make a covenant with Israel. And at the same place, Moses would ascend that, that mountain to offer his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people after the golden calf incident. So. All of those events together, and believe it or not, I could keep going with how important mountains are in the Bible. Well, they tell us both that mountains are important in the Bible, but when they show up, it's not merely that Jesus is like, oh, a mountain, let's go there. No, they they really matter, and he's doing something important, and we should pay attention. That Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, is following in the pattern, again, of what Moses did on Sinai, ascending the mountain to commune with God in His glory cloud, the same cloud that led Israel out of Egypt. And, of course, Moses radiated God's glory for a time after being in that that cloud. In fact, he scared the people so badly that he would often, often cover his face, just as in our passage, Moses radiates God's glory too. But Jesus ascending the mountain to pray is also indicative, not just of what Moses did, but of what Isaiah 56 looked forward to. That the nations would flow to God's holy mountain, and on that holy mountain, God would establish His house. That is His temple. And His house would be a house of prayer. That is a house of communion. And Jesus repeats that same thought in a very different context in Luke 19 when He cleansed the temple He said, my house shall be a house of prayer, not a house of robbers. So at the very least, we see that one of Jesus' ultimate concerns is the establishment of his house, the true temple in himself, where humanity communes with God, restoring what was lost in Eden. And it's so interesting that what was in the house before with the Levitical sacrifices are replaced with sacrificial prayer. And again, what do we most often offer to our God? We offer Him our life, and we offer it to Him in our song, and in our prayer, and in our prayer. Now add to this that in verse 34, that a cloud came and overshadowed them, which is the same language used to describe how the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. When Jesus was conceived and in turn that they were afraid as they entered the cloud like how Isaiah was afraid when he entered God's throne room or how the people of God were terrified of God's presence on top of Mount Sinai and taken together again what you should see what in your mind should be comparing and contrasting is Moses encountering God and in his presence on Sinai for good reason then when Peter briefly recounts this very event In 2 Peter 1.18, he calls this place the holy mountain. That's also a description of the temple. This is the holy mountain. So where God is, and this is one of only two moments in the gospel, where God the Father speaks and the cloud indicates his presence among them, like it did in the Exodus, where God is, again, like at the burning bush, that place is holy ground holy ground. So this is a holy mountain. So heaven, like we see happen in the book of Revelation, had come down. It had come down. God was dwelling among his people, and that's important. It is never that we must find a way to get to God. It is always that God comes down. So for example, if you look, and I'm just riffing at this point, if you look at what happens at Babel, what are they trying to do? They're trying to build a temple to go up. But by the time you get to Jacob wrestling with God, what does he see? He sees a ladder, really a temple, a tower, in which God comes down to him. That is always the movement in Scripture, that God comes near because we cannot go to him. Now notice that that as Jesus was praying, as he was communing with God, his appearance was changed. So his face radiated and his, his clothing was dazzling white. And this is similar to the description of the angels at his, his tomb after his resurrection, even as it anticipates his glorified appearance in the book of Revelation. It also anticipates what Jesus promised to do for his people, to glorify us and robe us in his own righteousness and his own glory. In fact, he does that for Moses and Elijah. Now, we read that two men appeared alongside Jesus and spoke with him. And Luke tells us they appeared in glory, and they were none other than, well, Moses and Elijah. Now, Jesus was glorious on his own, but Moses and Elijah's glory was dependent on his. That is, Jesus, the God-man, like the glory cloud in Exodus, is glorious on his own. And in turn, like how God's presence in the glory cloud made Moses radiate God's glory, Jesus glorifies his people. We see this with Elijah and Moses in a similar way. Now, there are many reasons why Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus in this moment. And one reason is that God requires two witnesses for a matter to be confirmed as true. This is why God will often swear by himself when he's making a covenant or he's making a promise. Because there's nothing else higher that, that he can swear by than himself. And then he will do it a second time. He'll swear twice because it requires two Witnesses. It's why in the law it took two witnesses to convict someone of a capital crime. It's why in the context of church discipline, in Matthew 18, Jesus requires two or three witnesses for a charge to be established against a brother or sister in Christ. And in turn, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We are witnessing to the truth of Christ right now. It's why there were two men on either side of Jesus in his crucifixion, bearing witness to his death, and why, in Luke's account of the resurrection, there were two men at his tomb, bearing witness to the women that he had been raised from the dead. So also, these two men bear witness to the coming of the new creation and the kingdom of God in Jesus through his coming exodus. Now, Moses and Elijah were uniquely suited as witnesses. Moses represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. The law and the prophets both look forward to Jesus and find their meaning and fulfillment in him. That is the claim of the New Testament. But also consider that in Deuteronomy 34, Moses was buried by God himself. And God alone knew where Moses was buried. Think about that. God himself buried Moses which tells you how much God cared for Moses even in his sin and God alone knew where he was buried he knew the spot so he knew where to resurrect him he knew and Elijah well he did not die at all but was taken by God directly into his presence all of these things help deepen our understanding of what is at at play here but the specific reason Uh, Luke gives for why Moses and Elijah are there is that they were talking to Jesus about that coming Exodus. Now, I don't openly or often openly uh, critique English translations because I don't want to undermine anyone's confidence in them, and they're all very good. All of them are, are really very good in their own unique ways, but to use the word departure, if you're using the English Standard Version, Instead of the word Exodus, I'm sorry, but that's a terrible translation. It's terrible. The actual word in the Greek is Exodus. It's Exodus, and by using that term, Luke doesn't want us to see that Jesus is merely going to depart, whatever that means, but that his suffering, death, and resurrection taken together are the Exodus events of world history. The salvation event of world history, and the very thing that the first Exodus anticipated and looked forward to, it was merely a shadow of what Jesus would do for the world. And the reason they were talking to Jesus is because their future life. Notice they're, they're glorious, but they aren't resurrected. Elijah, who didn't die, still requires resurrection. Their future life is dependent on the exodus that Jesus will soon accomplish in Jerusalem through His death and resurrection. So all all the words of the prophets, the entirety of the Levitical sacrificial system was dependent upon and looked forward to the one sacrifice of the unblemished son of the herd, Jesus Himself, even as our future life beyond the dust and the ground is dependent on Jesus Himself being raised from the dead. It's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then the forgiveness of sins is a moot point. You may be forgiven, but you will remain in the ground. You will remain in the ground. If Jesus was not raised, then he would still be dead. And that will be our future too. So despite how long Moses and Elijah had been with the Lord and glory, The entirety of what had come before was dependent on what Jesus would do in Jerusalem in about eight or nine months' time from this very moment. Well, verse 32 tells us that Peter, James, and John were heavy with sleep. And this anticipates in many ways the night of Jesus' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was another critical evening in his ministry, another important night of prayer on top of the Mount of Olives, which itself also functions as another symbolic Eden. But when they became fully awake, they saw Jesus's glory and the two men, men standing with him. So on one reading, this is an account of what practically happened, right? The men were dozing and came fully awake when they beheld Jesus in his glory. But at the same time, this is also what spiritually happened to the disciples over the course of their time with jesus they went from being sleepy and confused to fully awake to his glory and his resurrection what you see peter saying here in this moment versus what he will go on to say at pentecost is radically different and you could see that that growth of maturity we read in verse 33 that as elijah and moses were departing peter said master It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And as Luke explains, he just kind of interjects. He doesn't let uh, Peter finish, because God doesn't let Peter finish this sentence. He says, Peter did not know what he was saying. So he's just babbling at at this point. And it's hard to know really exactly what Peter meant by, by tent, and specifically what he was trying to do or suggesting they do. So maybe he was wanting to make little altars or or shrines to them, recognizing the importance of the moment. Or maybe he was wanting to put up makeshift booths like with the Feast of Booths, otherwise known as Sukkot, And some scholars think maybe this happened close to that festival, who knows? But what is clear is that while Peter recognized they were being given an incredible privilege, And seeing this moment, he had no clue what any of it meant and was struggling to make sense of it. In response, God shows up in the cloud, not unlike when God showed up, certainly on Sinai, but in response to Job speaking to him out of the whirlwind. And God says, this is my son, my chosen one, or really my beloved. Listen to him. This is one of two places in the gospel where God the Father speaks. The first was at Jesus' baptism, and in both events, he says the same thing. This is my beloved Son. Here, he adds the commandments, listen to him. And this is in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, there will come one after me that is greater than me, listen to him. And here He is. And already we've seen Elijah and Moses dialoguing with Jesus. And guess what? Moses listens to Jesus. And Jesus has consistently taught up to this point, those who are the good soil, those who are His disciples, are those who listen to His Word and do what He says. This is precisely what the disciples needed to do. And we're struggling to do. And we see their struggle in that Luke tells us immediately after they heard God's voice, and then they see Jesus alone. This is the key part. They remained silent. They remained silent about what they had seen and didn't tell anybody about it for a long time. Now, clearly, they eventually did because we're reading about it. But at the time, they didn't read about it. And the reason they remained silent was not because they were unimpressed by what they saw. Clearly, Peter was so impressed that he had become a babbling idiot and was seemingly, at least it appears to me, flirting with heresy. No, the reason they remained silent and told no one, and we can presume they didn't tell the other disciples either at this point, is because they could not put it all together. They could not understand that the one who is the Christ, the one they had seen heal people, and cast out demons and miraculously feed thousands of people, even raise people from the dead, is the same glorious, radiant God man they had just seen with their own eyes. And in turn, he is also the same one who would suffer and die in a way that was not only scandalous to both Jews and Gentiles alike, but was a means of punishment reserved for those cursed by God. How can all these things be true? How can you put them all together? It's why in Matthew's account of Peter's confession of Jesus, Jesus tells Peter that his confession, that he is the Christ, came straight from God the Father, and he praises him for it. Like, this is awesome, Peter. You got that straight from my Father. And so clearly Peter had been listening to Jesus' word and believed it, but in Matthew's account... When Jesus tells the disciples he would soon die on the cross, Peter rebukes Jesus, right? That's talking him down. Think about that. And Jesus in turn says, get behind me, Satan. So on the one hand, Peter had the absolute best confession you can make. And in the next moment, Jesus calls him Satan. So Peter refused to listen to Jesus. God's beloved son, when it came to this word about his coming death, a word that was unpalatable, unthinkable for Peter and the disciples. And so we find Peter, James, and John. And again, these men are future pillars of the church, with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. They're left in silence because they could not reconcile their expectations with what they had witnessed and with what Jesus had taught them. So like Job, when they encountered the voice of God, the Father, they rightly stayed silent. And that's a good word for us too. You know, at the core of our life with God is listening to His Son and His word in the community together of His people. You know, sometimes that word is comforting and it, it hits every box for us. And we're like, yes, keep on going, preach that word. But you know, sometimes it's confusing. And it's hard, and it's strange, and it may even seem wrong, especially when it challenges long-held cultural beliefs. I'm going to be officiating a funeral this afternoon. And I will emphasize the resurrection, and I will say God has promised to literally resurrect His people from the ground. From the ground. And there will be some Christians who not only have probably never heard this, even though they've attended church the, their entire lives, some of them may even think that this is inappropriate or wrong for me to be saying such a thing at a funeral. You know, in such moments, the answer to our confusion is not to dismiss God's word or ignore it or call it outdated or culturally irrelevant. Is to be silent and to ponder it. When you come across a word in Scripture, you're like, I, just, I do not know what to do with this. That's a good moment to say, I'm just going to stop. And I'm going to ask God to be patient with me. Instead of writing it off. Instead of saying, well, I don't know, whatever. Next, and just keep going. You know, So for example, there, there's a certain contingency of conservative Christians. Of conservative Christians who say things like, you know, there's a time and place for turning the other cheek. And you know, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. But that time has passed. It is not right now. There's a war raging, and we need to quit treating our enemies with civility. And that's, that's really no different than there are liberal opponents who say things like, you know, the Bible really doesn't teach homosexuality is a sin. And if it does, well, that's, that's just Paul's biases, and we don't need to listen to him because by our standards, he's a bigot, so I'm not going to do it. It's no different. It's just a cultural bias. Or as Peter put it, Jesus, we are all for you being the Christ. We're here for you. But we think all this talk about crucifixion is wrong-headed. You need to stop. What makes listening to Jesus so difficult and really so so dangerous is that He changes us. He reshapes us. And sometimes He radically changes us our understanding of the world with the disciples what began as confusion turned to silence which eventually turned into betrayal and desertion and yet jesus was faithful to men like peter and after his resurrection everything changed what was initially scandalous and unthinkable became the most beautiful words that Peter could utter, and of course, it is at the core of what he preached. Just go read his sermons in the book of Acts. They are marvelous. They're so good. And remember as you read them what he said here. He just babbled because he was so confused. The growth into maturity is often just like that. We start off ignorant, confused, often at odds with what Jesus teaches, thinking we know better than He does, only to have Him work in us through His Spirit to where some of the strangest words ever written, the Son of God died for us and for our salvation and was raised from the dead, they become words of comfort and hope and words that we ourselves are willing to die for. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would comfort us in Your Son, I will fully admit that some parts of your word are really hard for me. And they really challenge my heart and my mind and my behavior and my ethics. And I resist it. So I ask for myself and I ask for all of us that you would change our minds and our hearts. That you would work in us through your spirit. That you would move us from confusion to understanding. And maybe we need to be silent for a time. But move us from immaturity to maturity as you have promised. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen.